This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the UCSF um, Mini Medical School for the Public. This upcoming session is going to be focused on trauma care. And my name is Sue Peterson. I'm one of the co-chairs of the program. I'm the trauma program manager at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. For those of you who may not know, San Francisco General is the only trauma center in San Francisco. And we also take patients, trauma patients, from the northern portion of San Mateo County because San Mateo County doesn't have a trauma center. Um, Over the next six weeks, you're going to get to have an inside look at one of our resuscitation rooms and what a trauma resuscitation looks like. You're going to hear from a trauma surgeon and learn about what their work and their life is like. You're going to get a peek at um, innovations in spinal cord injury care, traumatic brain injury, and learn about public health issues like gun violence. Um, We'll also hear from some community members and um, survivor of trauma. You'll hear two presentations tonight. The first um, is going to be by Dr. Jill Mongelusa and Dr. Lauren Chalwell. They're emergency medicine physicians at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and they're going to run through kind of the anatomy of a resuscitation. And they'll be followed by a presentation by Dr. Rachel Calcutt, who's one of our trauma attending surgeons um, at the hospital, and she'll tell you all about trauma care. There'll be a little time in between presentations if you have a couple questions, and then more time at the end. So welcome, and I hope you guys enjoy this series. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Lauren Chawell. This is Jill Montaluzzo. Um, as Sue said, we are attending physicians at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. We're assistant professors um, in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UCSF, but we work clinically at San Francisco General Hospital in the emergency department. Um, this evening, we're going to start the broad intro to trauma. It's a very big subject, but we'll try and tackle on some key points for you. So objectives this evening are to um, discuss what a trauma center is and what what the criteria to go to a trauma center involves. Um, We'll talk a little bit about um, the protocols we use to guide us in caring for the traumatically injured patients. And we'll demonstrate the importance of teamwork in what we do. It's a very important part in trauma care, as well as discussing common diagnostics and treatments for our trauma patients. So to start, who is affected by traumatic injuries? Um, The World Health Organization and the CDC both list trauma as a leading cause of death uh, globally and nationally, respectively. In the U.S., um, trauma accounts for 10% of all deaths for both men and women combined. It's the number one cause of death in young adults in the United States. And uh, annually, more than 50 million uh, Americans receive some form of trauma-related medical care. So this is a picture of the uh, new, shiny uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, which opened in May of this year. We were very excited to move just across the sidewalk to our neighbor building. And so why is San Francisco General Hospital important to our community? So for those of you uh, who live in San Francisco, it's our only level one trauma center in the city and county of San Francisco and northern uh, San Mateo County, as Sue mentioned. Um, It was established as a level one trauma center in 1968. 
Um, and the population we serve is over 1.5 million people in that catchment area. And typically, annually, we serve over 4,000 trauma patients in, uh, in Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. So what makes a trauma center? So what's the purpose? Um, a, a trauma center is designated um, and verified at the state level and also by governing bodies such as the American College of Surgeons. Um, a level one trauma center is the highest level that you can achieve. Um, and you basically have to meet certain specifications that have been listed by these governing bodies. Um, specifically, the most important is that you have 24-hour in-house access to general surgery um, who have been trained uh, in trauma care of patients. Uh, so they're available at all times of the day, as well as access to our subspecialties, such as neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, facial trauma, um, and pediatrics and obstetrics and gynecology um, for our pediatric and pregnant patients who are traumatically injured. So why does this matter? Why, why does it matter if you have a special fancy title of a level one trauma center? So it matters because it saves patients' lives. Studies have shown that um, patients who are severely injured from trauma um, have decreased and are treated in a trauma center have a decreased mortality when compared to patients who are treated in non-trauma centers. And obviously, in medicine, as in all aspects of medicine, our goal is to decrease mortality for our patients, decrease the number of deaths. So for trauma, there's what's classically taught is a trimodal distribution of, of deaths. Um, and what this means is that there are three peaks in, in timing of when patients who are severely traumatically injured may die. The first peak occurs on scene, so when the injury initially happens in the first few seconds. Um, these are not survivable injuries, so brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, um, lacerations to large blood vessels that cause bleeding out very quickly on the scene. These are not patients that, are, that can survive these injuries. And the way that you decrease um, the number of deaths for these patients is by um, injury prevention. So, that, so things like car seats, seat belts, helmets, these are the ways that we decrease the number of deaths in, in this, this peak. Um, the second peak... Um, makes up survivable but very serious injuries. Um, and this is where advances in trauma care and um, coming to a trauma center can really make a difference. So as we make advances in trauma care, this peak will go, will go down and be pushed forward towards the earlier. Um, and then the third peak represents the complications from serious injury. So these patients have to be hospitalized for days to weeks. They're susceptible to organ failure and to infections. And so the way that we decrease the number of deaths in this peak is by improving our resuscitation and critical care. And so one of our advances to decreasing that second peak, the improving the trauma um, care for patients, one of, one of the advances was when um, the American College of Surgeons developed a curriculum called the Advanced Trauma Life Support, or ATLS. And this is a curriculum that was developed for both trauma centers and non 
trauma centers, um, for, for physicians, providers, to be able to provide excellent care to the trauma patients that showed up, whether it was in an urban center or out in the middle of um, the community. And the principles that ATLS teaches um, are three most important. So the first is to, to treat the most life-threatening injury first. And this is um, identified on the primary survey. Uh, Dr. Montaluso will talk a little bit more about the primary survey in just a few moments. Um, the second is, is understanding that a definitive diagnosis is not immediately important. So when you're taking care of the greatest threat to life, you just have to make a management and you have to do the best that you can for the patient and, and stabilize them. Knowing exactly what the problem is is not the most important thing. And the third thing is that time matters. So whether you're making interventions, you're ordering x-rays, um, or you need to transfer this patient to a trauma center, time matters. And so having a sense of expediency and urgency is also incredibly important. So there's a, a, a spectrum of trauma care, so where this occurs. Um, initially, obviously, it's in the pre-hospital setting, so before you even get to the hospital, the um, emergency medical services is activated um, and where they take care of you, the paramedics take care of you, coming to the emergency department. Um, and then from there, they can either go to radiology to get imaging, so x-rays and CT scans, um, or to have an intervention um, with our interventional radiologists where they can um, uh, actually give treatment there. Um, Versus if the, the patient is very, very sick and unstable and cannot go to radiology, they could go to the operating room or to the intensive care unit. And then from there, they would go to the surgical ward to complete their, their trauma care. So let's start with the pre-hospital trauma care. So the goal of the pre-hospital trauma care is, um, is for the paramedics to obtain the history. So they arrive on the scene. They want to find out, was this, uh, was this a car accident? How fast was the car going? Were you wearing your seatbelt? Was there any intrusion into the vehicle, meaning did the other car hit you and then your door came in and hit you? Um, did, you, did your airbag go off? Um, and was anyone else in the car injured? These are all important things for us to take in when you get to the emergency department to, to best evaluate you. Um, quickly assessing ABCs, which is airway, breathing, circulation. Again, Dr. Montaluso will talk about this in just a moment, the primary survey. And then um, immobilizing the spine. So often trauma patients will come in in hard um, collars around their neck, which are, can be very uncomfortable. But it's important in stabilizing the spine um, to prevent any in further injury if there already is a spinal injury. Um, applying oxygen loosely splinting fractures if there's an unstable broken bone. Um, want to make sure that that doesn't get worse by moving the patient into the ambulance and then into the emergency department. Um, controlling bleeding wounds, very important in the field. So applying tourniquets um, or ap applying pressure to a bleeding wound um, can be life-saving. Uh, starting an IV, starting IV fluids if blood pressure is low. Um, and then lastly, uh, triaging. Does this patient need to go to a trauma center? Are they, are they ill enough to go to a trauma center? Um, and if so, rapidly transporting them there and communicating with the trauma center that they have a critically ill trauma patient so that we can be prepared uh, when they arrive with a, a, tra a traumatically injured patient. And so from, from that perspective, um, 
we are on the receiving end of those phone calls. So we'll get what's called a ring down from uh, medics that is letting our charge nurse know that they have a, a traumatically injured patient. And we have two levels. We have the, the sort of most sick patient, the, um, the 900 activation. And examples of this would be gunshot wounds to the head, neck, chest, abdomen, um, patients with stab wounds to the neck or torso, patients who have low blood pressure um, or have a need for a breathing tube, they're not breathing on their own, um, if they're paralyzed, or if they're more than four months pregnant, um, this patient would be brought in as a 900 activation. And the reason that's important is it brings a a specific team to the emergency department. Um, It brings uh, the trauma team, the anesthesia team, the emergency team, the radiology um, team, and the the hospital administrators get a page to know that there's a a traumatically injured patient coming and to mobilize resources. Um, And then the next level down is patients who meet criteria to come to the trauma center, um, but not as critically ill. So that's our 911 activation. This includes falls for more than um, 12 feet or a flight of stairs, for example. Um, Children who fall from twice their own height or over 10 feet. Motorcycle and vehicle accidents going more than 20 miles per hour. Um, Any serious motor vehicle collision. So if a patient went out uh, through the windshield, that would be pretty serious, and so they would come in if they're not meeting the criteria for the 900. And then a pedestrian who's hit by a vehicle um, with a serious impact. And then next, the patient comes to the emergency department, and and, uh, Dr. Montaluso will take over. All right, good evening, everybody. So I'm going to talk about the trauma team. And the trauma team is a beautiful team of highly trained interprofessionals, So if you come in as a 900 trauma, you are going to have a lot of people taking care of you. So you get a surgery trauma attending. You get an emergency medicine attending. You sometimes have, depending on the institution, an anesthesia attending. You have at least two nurses, and you have a nurse recording what's going on. We call it scribing. You have, at our institution, you have at least two residents, if not more. One does the primary assessment. And one does procedures. There's often at least one more that's willing to do more procedures, help with things. Uh, You have someone focused on the airway, either anesthesia or emergency medicine, and then you have a respiratory therapist. We are also fortunate to have ED pharmacists, who are pharmacists who do a residency in emergency medicine, and they're there to help calculate doses and give medications. So a ton of research has been done, and basically the bottom line is good teamwork equals better patient outcomes. It decreases error. Uh, We train physicians in teamwork mostly through simulation. We do do reviews of videos of of trauma patients who come in. They're live videos. We review them once a month. And we do this to better our teamwork, better our communication with each other, figure out systems issues that can always be improved. So what is good teamwork? I, um, this is from the Ottawa Crisis Resource Management Global Rating Scale. There's several different scales out there that you can use to measure teamwork. They all have the same general principles. So the first thing is to stay calm. The next thing is to make prompt and firm decisions. You want to maintain a global perspective. So thinking about the bigger picture, where is this patient going? 
what is everyone in this room doing for this patient? You want a thorough yet quick assessment of their ABCs, and that's their airway, breathing, and circulation. You want to avoid fixation arrows, so that's not focusing on what you think is going on, but also constantly considering what else could be happening, noticing what the nurses are doing, uh, noticing what the vital signs and how they're changing. You want to anticipate future events. So is this person going to go to the operating room? Do they need to go to the interventional radiology suite? Do they need to go to the CT scanner? And so you mobilize people to get those things to happen before they need to happen. You set clear tasks for people. Lauren, can you do a fast exam? Rich, can you put an IV in? Bob, can you go get blood from the blood bank? You clearly communicate in a direct fashion, and then you do a feedback loop of communication. So when I ask for an IV, they tell me when they get the IV. Uh, and you use people's names as much as possible. So the primary survey goes through basically a head-to-toe, hitting the most vital organ systems first. So when we go through the airway, we want to make sure the airway is clear. There's nothing obstructing in the mouth. There's no massive bleeding coming from the mouth. Breathing, it's our lungs getting in, or our, excuse me, air getting into the lungs equally on both sides. Circulation, that's not just someone's blood pressure. It's also how their skin feels, because the, skin, the blood vessels to the skin will clamp down first to uh, maintain perfusion to your brain and organs. So are they sweaty? Do they have pulses in their extremities? D is disability. This is, are they moving everything? How, how awake are they? And then exposure. So this is making sure you didn't miss a bullet hole on somebody's back, that you didn't miss something, some vessel that's bleeding on their leg while you focus on everything else. So you take everything off and you look at them head to toe. So we're going to talk about a case. And this is a case of a 30-year-old male who was at a happy hour and forgot his helmet at work, so decided to bike home and then was hit by a car. And this is a common scenario in San Francisco. Um, one, nationally, alcohol is involved in many traumatic injuries. And two, the city has done a lot to increase awareness of bikers, but we do share narrow streets with bikers. And three, to always wear a helmet. So we have some volunteers that... Um, we filmed running a simulation. We had about 10 minutes to film this because it was a very busy day, and so the trauma rooms were rapidly turning over. Um, but these brave souls were willing to, to perform for us. Okay, here we go. So the first thing is the medic report. Okay, so Marker, report. All right, so I have a 36-year-old male patient here. He was uh, riding his bicycle without a helmet on actually fell off onto his left side here. He's got some evidence of some head trauma and some uh, trauma over the left rib cage here. He's currently GCS8. Vital signs are 100 systolic on the blood pressure. He's top tip with right around sir. And uh, yes, his heart rate is a little tacky at 108. And like I said, we're right around the corner, so we didn't have time to do a lot of treatment. Okay. Awesome. Thank all right, so just so you know, we try to wear personal protective gear as much as possible to protect the staff. All right, and that was the medic report. So the medics tried to tell us what happened on scene because they are often the only story we have, what the vital signs were on the scene because that is very important because someone may be hypotensive in the scene, on the scene but have a normal blood pressure in the emergency department, but there was a reason why their blood pressure was low on scene. 
and then they're going to tell us what they did for the patient. So she's going through her ABC evaluation. Okay, so a few things that happened here. One is they talked about this GCS score, and that's the glass calcoma score. And that's a tool we use to see how awake somebody is. And um, we use it, one, so providers can communicate to each other so we are all on the same page about someone's mental status. Bring it up for you here. So there's a verbal component, an eye component, and a motor response. So if someone is doing nothing, they're automatically a GCS of three. That's the lowest you can go. If they're awake and talking to you tonight, they're a GCS 15. So they're intubating a patient and they're putting a chest tube in. First, you're going to fly up. Thank you. Just going to fully expose them. Watch your mind. Are you getting in tight all? You're going to have to Awesome. Let's move um, on to the fast exam. Um, patient seems like he's responding to blood, but it's still tachycardic and hypotensive. Um, also, I want to move through his secondary survey a little bit. So the secondary survey is looking basically head to toe everywhere for other injuries. Two, three. 
So these nurses are, are very senior nurses, and as you can see, most of them don't need to be told what to do. They flow very well with each other and, know, and are all anticipating what the next steps are, and that's the, the ideal. Um, you'll also notice that they did a lot of repeating things, like the fastest positive, oh, the fastest positive, just to make sure everyone is on the same page of what the findings are for the patient. So this gentleman had um, altered mental status, so he had a low GCS. We use a GCS about eight, roughly, to decide whether or not to intubate somebody in the emergency department. And, and to intubate is when we put a breathing tube down their throat and put them on a ventilator. He also had low blood pressure. Um, causes of low blood pressure in general in trauma patients is a very simplistic view, but it's usually from bleeding. Um, usually internally, people will say, so that's usually from the liver or spleen. You can bleed externally, so you can cut an artery and, and have a lot of blood that bleeds out on scene. Um, you can break a big bone in your body and have bleeding from that. Uh, you can have a spine injury, which can cause low blood pressure. You can also have um, injury to your heart and get some bleeding around your heart. And then this gentleman also had um, crepitus, which is indicative of air and broken ribs. So he um, got a, the chest tube. And so that is another cause of low blood pressure. And that we call a pneumothorax or a hemothorax. And that's air or blood around the lung. We use FAST a lot in trauma, traumas. Um, and a FAST is an ultrasound exam. So the ultrasound, this is a normal view. This is your kidney and this is your liver. Uh, fluid on a FAST is black like this, so this is an abnormal fast. So in a trauma patient, this would be assumed to be blood. And that can help guide us. If someone's blood pressure is low, it can help, uh, help us figure out where they could be bleeding from. They also put a pelvic binder on this patient. So if you break your pelvis, you can have a lot of bleeding, and that can cause your blood pressure to go low. And a pelvic binder is a device that compresses the pelvic bones to try to decrease the bleeding into somebody's pelvis. So the destination from the ED, if you're unstable, you're generally the trauma surgeons decide to take you to the operating room. If we can't get your blood pressure to come up with, with blood or IV fluids, mostly blood now is what we're using, um, then you're probably going to go to the operating room. If, in general, if somebody is stable or somewhat stable, we like to get them to a CT scanner. And a CT is just a giant x-ray of their whole body to kind of figure out what is going on and get a detailed evaluation of their injuries. So those are basically the two destinations um, from a resuscitation room. We're going to show you a few things that we're going to pass around to demo. The first is, this is an endotracheal tube. This is what we use to intubate a patient with, and this hooks up. This goes through their trachea and down to the tubes that connects to their lung, and we hook it up to a ventilator. I'm going to pass this around. This is a chest tube. So if you have blood or air around your lung, we're going to cut a, and make an incision by your ribs and put this into your chest wall to drain some of that blood and air around your lungs. And this is one of the bigger tubes, but what we would use in a sick trauma patient. And this is the pelvic binder that we use at San Francisco General. There's a few different brands, but they're basically 
all have the same function, and that's to put a lot of pressure around your pelvis. Pass this around. Do we have any questions so far? Yeah. Whenever you're doing your secondary skin and you're going around the body, and you have an unresponsive um, I'm wondering like, how you determine which parts of your body to do a CT scan on, or do you treat, I'm imagining you don't do a CT on the whole body, but if you can't feel that a joint is unstable, and the patient's not telling you it's painful, how do you, I feel like you miss, you miss fractures. Okay, so the question was, in someone that is altered or unable to tell us where they have pain, how do we decide what to CT scan? So in general, um, for blunt trauma, and that's blunt trauma is anything with an impact, if someone is that sick, that we're going to get what's called a pan scan. So we're going to CT their head, neck, chest, and abdomen. So you're right, it's not their extremities unless... We'll get x-rays of somebody's extremity if it looks broken, but a lot of that comes later on once they're like more awake and have the breathing tube to get like the finer detail of a broken bone or something. But we're looking for major injury that's going to be a threat to their life in the next hours to days. Uh, so we just assume, I mean, we can look at their back, look for like any obvious deformity along their spine, deformities on their extremities, but we assume that they're going, if you're that altered and been in a major accident that you're going to get a CAT scan, head, neck, chest, and abdomen, pelvis. You describe a large team standing around the patient. Who's in charge? That's a good question. Um, so in there should be one person talking in the room, and that's the assessor. So especially in a teaching environment, the attendings we are there to make sure everyone is on par, but it shouldn't be our voice out. We want to hear what the primary assessor is seeing and feeling. Um, so they are really the only voice in the room that should be heard. The ultimate final decisions, um, you know, about the OR, whether or not someone is going to the OR is up to the trauma surgeons. Um, but in general, the, there is one voice in the room calling out findings. to the assessor was a person just giving all the in that video? Yes. So that was the assessor giving, they're going through a head-to-toe assessment. And you can kind of tweak this a little bit. So there, the question was who the assessor was. That is the person that's doing the primary assessment of the patient, calling out all the things, asking for things to be done. Um, and they really, we try to keep we often have 15 to 20 people in a major resuscitation because we're a teaching institution. Uh, we have medical students. We have a lot of residents involved. That room has to be quiet. Uh, we ha everyone has to hear what that team leader is seeing and wanting to be doing. And as attendings, we can interject uh, as, we, as needed for, pa you know, for good patient care. Any other questions? All right, thank you. Hello to everybody. Um, my name is Rachel Calkin. I'm one of the trauma surgeons at San Francisco General. We're just going to try to load my slides here for one second, real quick. So while we're working on trying to load the slides, um, again, my name is Rachel Calkin. I'm one of the adult trauma surgeons at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, how many of you know what a trauma surgeon does? Anybody in the room? 
So most people actually um, don't really know what a trauma surgeon is. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more detail about what a trauma system is and interject in here the kinds of things that we do. Most people's perception of what we do is this. Um, this is, I'm not any of these characters. I'm sure they make more money than I do um, and have a lot more fun on the job. Um, I would say that most of the things that you've seen on TV about what trauma surgeons are or the functions that we uh, form have some element of truth to all of them. All of those shows have medical advisors actually from the trauma surgery community, believe it or not, colleagues around the country. But these are caricatures of what we do. Um, As an example, uh, when these guys were interns on the first season of Grey's Anatomy, they were already operating by themselves. That would never happen, and I'll explain to you how I got to where I was. But by way of background, I think it's really important to just kind of show you what people's perception is of what trauma systems and trauma surgeons are. There's a very, very interesting study. It is a bit of an old study, but it's probably the best done study regarding assessing the general public's opinion of what we do and how we do it. And actually was done through telephone interviews of over 1,000 adults all the way back in 2004, so a little bit um, older data, but very, very interesting. And the reason that this was actually done is that in America, we actually have a shortage of trauma surgeons. You will hear in a couple of slides what it takes to be me and how I got to where I was. And you'll see that it takes a very long time and a lot of money to train one of us to be trauma surgeons. And we actually, despite having a lot of trauma centers in the country, we actually have a shortage of trauma centers and trauma surgeons, believe it or not, because they're not well distributed across the country. And there are large parts of America that actually have no trauma center, say, within one hour. And that's sort of what we consider to be the standard of being able to get good trauma care. So this has actually been used over the years to advocate for increased funding for trauma centers. We've had some success with this um, and training of trauma surgeons, but there was just another report issued one month ago still saying that we have a significant problem with this. So Um, A lot of people think that trauma is not a leading cause of death. When you think about what you see on your TV and you hear about research funding for and you hear about what all the dollars that people are interested go to, I bet none of you have ever heard about dollars going to fund trauma research. We are one of the most underfunded, and part of that is that there's a failure of recognition of just how many people in America are affected by trauma. In the United States, it is the leading cause of death amongst those aged 1 to 44. There are, because of the neonatal deaths, that's why that group under 1, and those kids um, generally don't experience trauma. But from our greatest group of productive citizens in our country are actually dying at a phenomenally um, interesting rate, and it is still the leading cause of death for all those up to 44. As the population has aged, this number is about to say that it is the leading cause of death all the way up to into the 50s. Overall, if you look across the world, trauma is the second leading cause of death worldwide, even in non-developed nations in the third world. There are a lot of reasons why young people die, and we consider those under 44 to be the young folks. Um, In trauma, it's interesting that elderly actually is 65. It's not just because you're eligible for Medicare. Our data actually suggests that your outcomes are much worse as you age, and that age cutoff seems to be around 65. But the main reason that people die are various different types of injuries, um, homicide, suicide, and then it goes down from there. These bars here represent the different age groups, and if you look at this group of 25 to 34-year-olds, very high rate of injury, high rate of homicide, 
here in this group right here. We will hear about violence later on in this course, and I'm going to allude to a little bit of that as a way of introduction in a couple of our slides, but it's a real problem. If you look at what's happening within that group and who's actually dying and why what you were just shown is so important to have a systematic response and have a team, because we are all members of team, motor vehicle collisions are still the overwhelmingly um, most common identified injury-related death. If we were able to repeat this study, which we do every few years, you will start to see as the population has aged that falls believe it or not, even falls from standing height and elderly patients have a phenomenally high rate of mortality and morbidity, so complications and death associated with them. So these numbers are changing a little bit, but by and large, motor vehicle collisions still are the overwhelming leading cause. If you look at this part, which we'll talk about later on and I'll allude to again as an introduction for our subsequent talks, unintentional injury continues to rise as a cause. And this includes all the things that you've recently seen on TV, and we're going to talk a little bit about the growth in what we would call multiple or mass casualty need to respond. If you look at motor vehicle collisions, again, a little bit older data, the data for trauma usually lags many years behind because this data comes from a whole combination of um, sources, and it takes them a while to actually analyze this. But if you look at this, this is by county, actually all the motor vehicle deaths, and the more red it is, the more motor vehicle deaths there are. And what you see is that these are actually relatively rural areas that light up with the highest levels, and those that are down at the bottom are the areas that are very urban or well-populated, you can see here. And so that should tell you something about the fact that we don't have a nice distribution of trauma centers. If you surveyed these Americans in this, almost two-thirds of them thought that they would definitely get the best care if they had a serious or life-threatening injury. Sort of interesting. And they also thought that they um, should be treated at a trauma center in the event that they had a life-threatening injury. The overwhelming majority of the people surveyed, even if they didn't quite understand what a trauma center did, felt that they should be cared for at a trauma center. Interestingly, one out of every three Americans in this survey actually thought that the nearest hospital to them was a trauma center. And in fact, this is not actually reality. Two-thirds of Americans thought that it would take about 30 minutes to get to a hospital best equipped to handle their life-threatening injury, and almost all of them thought it would take under an hour. About 9 in 10 Americans think that it's extremely or very, imp- very important for an ambulance to take them to a trauma center in the event of a life-threatening injury, even if it's not the closest hospital. So obviously, even when people can't quite articulate what a trauma center is, people have a sense of what's important. This is a little bit hard to read the numbers of projections here, but... At the time that this survey was done, this is a little bit better now, but I think it's important to understand this. There were only 80 level one trauma centers. You heard in the previous talk that a trauma center that's a level one center is equipped to handle the most seriously injured patients. There were only 80 of these trauma centers in the entire United States, and they're not well distributed geographically. At the time, we had nine in California, only one in Nevada, None in the time up here of the survey. This has changed. There are some level one trauma centers now. And then a group of them here, a lot in Texas, it's a big state, but they had 10 of them. Actually, in the city of Dallas, they compete practically right across the street for trauma patients. And so it's very interesting. 
level two trauma centers, which are also highly skilled to take care of um, severely injured patients, but perhaps lack neurosurgery support around the clock, 24 hours as an example. There are more of those, and they're a little bit more scattered and evenly distributed at the time of the survey. But you can say that overall, when this survey was done, that only 8% of all hospitals at the time of the survey actually had trauma centers. So most Americans thought that they lived by a trauma center, but in fact, that's not true. So six in 10 Americans would be extremely or very concerned if they, were, if they found out there were no trauma centers within easy reach of where they lived. So they would find this information to be distressing. And nine of 10 would feel that having a trauma center is at least as important as having a library. Remember, this is a little bit old, their data. Maybe people don't go to quite libraries anymore like they used to um, now that we have the internet. And eight in 10 Americans thought that it was as important as having a fire department nearby and equally important having a police department nearby. And 75% of the patients, the people who were surveyed would be extremely or very concerned if they learned a trauma center in their state was closing or reducing services. But in fact, what led, as you remember me saying to the survey, is actually manpower being the number one reason why closures were happening at the time of the survey. Two-thirds of emergency departments in this one study said they had inadequate surgical specialty care. We don't have to think about this in the San Francisco area because we have such tremendous health care systems here. But you go out into even rural parts of California, and they have to think about this. Where I did my training in the Midwest, which we'll talk about, it was not uncommon for me to receive phone calls where they would tell me that they had some, someone in their emergency department with something as simple as an appendicitis, and they needed to put that person in a car or an ambulance and drive them two or three hours to get to us because they had no local care. So this is a, it is a real problem and continues to be a problem. Interestingly, a quarter of hospitals don't want to treat trauma patients. The reason for that is trauma patients, as you saw from the first talk, are very resource-intensive to take care of. And it's not just about what happens to them when they immediately come in, but those who are most injured have generally long hospitalizations, very, very expensive care, and they continue to require care, and it can be potentially a drain on some um, hospital systems. So you have to think carefully and thoughtfully when you have a trauma center. And over the time that this survey was done, just preceding it, 30 trauma centers in America had been forced to eliminate services or downgrade to a lower level of care secondary to resources. So it is very interesting. We have three trauma surgery organizations in the country. One is the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma. This is the, our major organization. And then two national organizations but have a predominance. One's called EAST, and it's mostly surgeons from the East Coast, although there's some of us from the West Coast in it, and the Western Trauma Association. These three organizations were surveyed around the same time as the original survey. On average, and I would say that this has even gotten a little bit, um, there are less young people in this than there used to be, Almost 90% of them were males. This has improved a little bit. Fact of interest, we have the um, highest number of female trauma surgeons in the country are based at San Francisco General Hospital of any level one trauma center. Yeah, applause for that. And we're very proud of that. We're about 50-50 male-female, but that's unusual. Most of us work about 80 hours a week. Um, I would say we probably work about 100 hours a week, um, but 80 hours a week. 
Uh, almost all the trauma surgeons in these organizations are based at those level one trauma centers. Over half of us, when we're on call, we actually sleep in the hospital. So that means we're there for some period of time, 12, 24, or 36 hours, depending on what we're doing, sleeping there so that we can respond with our emergency department colleagues at the drop of a hat if someone needs a major operation. But we don't do very many operative-specific trauma cases, so we supplement this with a lot of general surgery. And the reason for that is, is that these patients who often come into us don't require an operation from us, but they require really intensive critical care, which we are also trained to provide. So on average, they would do about 50 trauma cases. We do far more than this at San Francisco General. And most people were really happy that they were trauma surgeons. At the time of this survey, which was a number of years ago, I would say if you controlled for inflation, this is probably somewhere around three hundred to $315,000. So most of this still rings true to today. So that's a little bit about who we are. Look at this. Almost 100 active job openings. So if anyone wants to train to be a trauma surgeon, <laughs> we're taking applications. Um, across the country, um, we, on average, it takes us about two years to recruit a trauma surgeon and to fill our spots because there are so few of us in training. And I would say, depending on when you look at this, it can be anywhere between 60 and 100 open jobs at various points in time. This is actually me operating. This is a HIPAA-compliant photo. Um, that's me operating um, right there, concentrating on doing something. So what does it take to be a trauma surgeon? So I did four years of undergraduate training at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Four years of medical school at the University of Cincinnati. You'll notice a Midwest theme here. I did a seven-year surgical residency, general surgery residency, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Contained within this is five years of clinical training and two years of research training. So most of us who are in trauma surgery do two years of research during our training. And then a one-year fellowship. At the time that I finished my training, we did one-year fellowships. Now most people are doing two-year fellowships. So if you add that all up, it takes... Eight, fifteen, about 16 years to train one of us. And so that's why it takes a very long time to get us and why there's a shortage. You get a no paycheck here you're paying. You're paying here. So you leave after eight years with, on average, about almost $200,000 in debt. And then you commit yourself to another eight years of barely making it by. So for those people that you encounter that are in training, no matter whether they're surgeons or not in the city and county of San Francisco, imagine living here at the expense of living here, making a very, very small wage. None of them are starving, but it certainly it takes a long time till you get a real paycheck. My favorite question when I was doing this is people used to ask me when I was going to get a real job. Um, my father mostly. Um, you don't get through this if you don't have a lot of support by family, friends, and so have you. So by the time you do your very first case as an attending trauma surgeon, so if you meet me the very first day that I can call myself an attending or a boss trauma surgeon, I have spent the last... 16 years training, and I've spent eight years operating under apprenticeship models with various providers, and I've probably done close to 2,000 cases by the first time that I do something completely on my own. So we're highly trained, but it takes a very long time to get there. Um, there are lots of fellowships to train us, so that extra one year, but they're predominantly spread in the Midwest, so that's the Midwest theme you see there, plus I was born and raised right in here in the Michigan area, um, and then some out here on the West Coast. Um, we train about just under 100 new trauma surgeons every year, graduate from fellowship programs. 
that does not keep up with the number of people who are reaching retirement age in our field, and so that's part of the gap area. We've worked really hard since 2005 when only 50% of the positions filled. If you think about it, who has, from the public's perception, the most undesirable job? The people who work a tremendous number of hours, takes a long time to train to get there, and we're up all night. Those of us who do it think that's the greatest thing about our job. You know, When the trauma pager goes off in the middle of the night, you can attest to this. We're down there, and we're excited. So we're, we're a group that sort of self-selects to want to have that type of career. There are one- and two-year programs, as I alluded to. The RRC is a governing body that says that the training program is okay. And most of the people who train in these, in these fellowships at the time of this survey make about $45,000 a year. This has not changed very much since this last survey. Um, and most people are practicing in centers that see about four to 5,000 trauma patients per year during their training. So if you think about that, if they spend two years, and there's usually only one or two fellows, and they usually are um, taking care of a vast majority of those patients in some capacity one way or another. They've seen about 10,000 patients in their two years of trauma-specific training. So what does a trauma surgeon do, or what do I do? Does this ring a bell to anyone, 7-6-2013? special about that day? That was the plane crash. This is the actual mass casualty page. This is my real pager. I was on call. You guys will hear more about this at one of the subsequent talks that we're going to have. But this is the public's perception of what we do has changed over the last few years since 2013. Since 2013, there's been a rise in the United States of the number of events that have gotten popular press that has required trauma surgeons to respond to it. We'll talk a little bit about why that is. But before a focus on mass casualty, this was something we all trained for in disaster planning, but we never actually thought we'd have to do in our careers. And it is becoming increasingly clear that the role of a trauma surgeon and the emergency department physicians that you've heard from is an increasing role in how we keep Americans safe and how we mitigate the loss associated with intentional acts of violence. But I do elective general surgery. So general surgery, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is pretty much everything in the abdomen cavity, in the belly cavity. I operate on any of those organs in any place there, taking tumors out, dealing with appendicitis. I do that in my free time. I do emergency general surgery, which means I pretty much take care of everything from about the chin to about the feet. That's non-bone structures. At any given time when people show up and they have some major reason why they need an immediate operation, a hole in their intestine, a twist in their intestines, an infection in their chest, an infection in their skin, things like that. We do the trauma cases, which you saw a little bit of, so we're not just taking care of trauma patients, which is why these trauma volumes are low, but we do a lot of surgery. On average, most of us do somewhere around three to 400 total operations a year. That's a typical trauma slash general surgeon. We're all double boarded in general surgery and also boarded separately, whole separate exam and credentialing for intensive care medicine, even though we're surgeons. And so we take care of really, really sick medical and surgical patients because of our background. So if you look at this, along with our emergency department colleagues, we take care of the sickest of the sick patients in the hospital on a consistent basis. 
Here in the city and county of San Francisco, we have nine trauma surgeons that care for over 1.5 million people. There are only nine of us. And between the nine of us, one of us is on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and you're going to get one of the nine of us. Almost all of us do some element of research. Some of us do a lot of research. We teach. This is the new Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. I'm a little bit sad that this course isn't able to be held there because I would love for all of you to see this absolutely spectacular facility. So if you get the opportunity to tour at any point in time, it is truly a gem of the city. Um, and then we do disaster planning and we do a lot of community outreach. This is the actual page that was provided to me by some of friends and colleagues at Orlando Regional Medical Center, the level one trauma center in the city of Orlando, Florida, on the day of the shooting in Orlando in the nightclub. And this is the actual page for trauma surgeons. If you think about them being nine of us in the entire city, this is our worst nightmare, right? 20 people coming in, more than 20 people coming in who've been shot. It doesn't matter how good I am. I can't operate on all 20 people simultaneously. So we are often faced with making very, very difficult decisions about who has something we can save and who doesn't. And these are tremendously difficult decisions that we make. This is the reality of our world. Um, some people may. Has anyone heard of the Hartford Consensus? Has anybody watched the show? Uh, I just blanked on the new black Code Black? Code Black. Anybody watch Code Black last week? Okay, Code Black featured for the first time ever endorsed by the American College of Surgeons, which is our governing body, the Stop the Bleed campaign, which is a huge campaign that we've launched in response as trauma surgeons, emergency department physicians, EMS, pre-hospital providers, and legislators, actually. It's a combined group that's come together to say that we need to train the public in some capacity to understand how to respond if they find themselves in a mass shooting event because they've happened with such frequency in the United States that we shouldn't be afraid, but we should be diligent and we should train people. I skipped a lot of the details of the Hartford Consensus, but I want to say that Hartford Consensus 3 was the ideology of the Stop the Bleed campaign specifically. This Hartford Consensus was formed in response to the Newtown shooting in Connecticut with all the little children after they went into that facility, after they felt that the facility was secured and they performed autopsies on those children, they realized that some of those children possibly could have been saved had bystanders on board known how to control extremity hemorrhage. And so many of the children had extremity hemorrhages that if put on a tourniquet, perhaps they may have survived. That was a horrifying discovery for law enforcement. It has changed the way that law enforcement interacts in these hostile situations and has also changed the way that the medical community has viewed trying to train the public to be um, actually active in this process if they ever, God forbid, find themselves in that situation. This has actually been endorsed by the National Security Council, believe it or not, some very important federal partners behind this. And essentially the goal is to teach people, the lay public, how to compress hemorrhage, how to place a tourniquet, and then how to compress again. And with these three simple steps, they could perhaps save many people's lives if you're ever in this situation. There have been efforts around the country with the Stop the Bleed campaign to distribute tourniquets into key locations like malls, where there would be a hemorrhage control kit actually within hospitals because hospitals themselves have now become targets. That's no longer a sacred place like it was before. We've had to think about this. Um, 
places like a stadium, so large gatherings of people. There was initially a large bit of skepticism around this, but we've actually, one of the organizations I'm proud to be a member of, have taken this actually into high-risk inner-city schools as a demonstration project. This is Thomas Jefferson High School in San Antonio, Texas. This is last January, January 2016. We were able to teach 100% of the junior and senior high school students at this school. This is a very, very, very economically depressed school. 95% of the children receive reduced or free federal school lunch. Um, and as a result of that, they feed 100% of the kids breakfast and lunch every day at the school. These kids have a tremendous amount of violence that they see in their communities. They live in some very, very difficult places. And in fact, in the first couple of minutes, when I, the very first class I taught that day, this girl raised her hand and told all of her classmates to pay attention because a tourniquet saved her brother's life when he was shot and a cop had a tourniquet. So tremendously powerful. There's been some data that's been gathered on whether or not this is able to be a sustained um, skill set, and generally speaking, it appears to be. So you will see more about this. This is a picture from the Hartford Consensus Group that they provided to me. This is someone who was shot in the arm with a properly applied tourniquet by a law enforcement personnel that was on the scene before EMS or paramedics. This patient had a complete transection of the major blood vessels through this arm and would have died very, very quickly and survived. We actually teach the kids also and adults who go through this program how to pack a wound properly because there is actually a way to pack a wound. You only really need to be shown once or twice and you can do it. The reason that this is so important, and we will come back to violence um, later in one of our subsequent talks that you guys will hear in a few weeks, is this staggering statistic. I want to qualify this, but I am not in any way making a political statement. This is data provided by the Federal Bureau of Investigation through a report that they've done. Some people have criticized this report because of the way that they have determined active shooter incidents. They decided that active shooter incidents were incidents where four or more individuals, not including the assailant or alleged assailant, were shot or killed. So four or more people. Some people say that that's too small of a number for an active shooter event. But for our purposes, if we get four shooting victims at one time, that requires specialized resources on our part. By way of telling you this, this is not an infrequent occurrence for trauma centers. Many urban trauma centers will see on Friday and Saturday nights four, five, six people shot at the same time. So that's where some of the controversy and these numbers come in. But these are high-profile events, and you can see this is 2000. This is the first year after Columbine. Columbine is really seen as the hallmark event that then kicked this off in terms of people collecting statistics. And you can see a relative proportional increase into this. Over 1,000 people shot or killed over this time period from these active shooter events. They have happened in all kinds of places. Educational environments, almost a quarter of them. It kind of feels like lately, every time I turn on the TV, there's another one of these potential events, and it's quite sad. In com commerce environments, this would be places like shopping malls. 10% in government environments, and only very few at the time that they did this study through 2013 in healthcare facilities. This has dramatically grown up, as has houses of worship. These are some of the most high profile. Everyone knows these by name. Um, Aurora, the theater shooting, Virginia Tech, Fort Hood, and Sandy Hook. If you look at these numbers, 70 people wounded, 17 wounded, 32 wounded, 2 wounded. 
these people who were killed, the vast majority of them died at the scene, so those are not people that we're going to care for at a trauma center because they won't be transported in a mass casualty event like this, generally speaking. But can you imagine caring for 70 people who were shot all at the same time? It's a feat. But here's what's scary. In the previous slide I showed you in those last 13 years, there was on average about 11 events per year at the end of 2013. In the last two years that the FBI has statistics available in the continental United States, there have been 20 events each year. Two of the ones that are more well-known from 2014 and 2015 are San Bernardino and Isla Vista. The thing that's interesting is that people who are doing this are getting more and more creative, if you could give them that terminology. So in this event, not only did they shoot people, but they tried to run them over with their cars. So what we see as trauma surgeons is getting incredibly more complicated. We haven't even really talked about the whole element of terrorism in this, but trauma surgeons are now being trained in response to terrorism events in terms of also responding in terms of chemical attacks. And so what's happened is where the perception of what a trauma surgeon did used to be influenced by TV shows, like I showed in the beginning, it's now influenced by this. These are real screenshots from various um, press conferences. These are two very good friends of mine who took care of patients in the Dallas shooting. And um, I think people are starting to have a better perception of who we are and what we do. But there's a tremendous amount behind what it takes to take care of these patients and the burden that people feel when these patients in these high-profile events die. This is Brian Williams right here. Have any of you seen him on TV? If you saw him on TV? Brian's a fantastic human being. I had the pleasure of knowing Brian long before anybody knew him outside of the trauma world. We've, been, we've grown up together in, the, in trauma fellowship together and everything, and so Brian's a great friend. And when I sat after Dallas and had some opportunity to debrief with him, what he kept hanging on to is he felt like he perhaps disappointed America because he couldn't save the three police officers who were brought to him simultaneously, none of the three who had anywhere close to survivable injuries, and they were fatal injuries. So it is an element we are starting, people are starting to ask the question of who we are, what we do, and try to understand who we are. We work within a system. I'm just going to finish up in a couple of minutes and then answer questions. And the system we work in is a trauma system. You heard a little bit about that system once the patient reaches the emergency department, but there's a lot about that system that speaks to that survey we did. We talked a little bit about how important trauma systems are to Americans, and most Americans think trauma systems are really important. And they think, again, that the system of trauma care is as important as state police. And most people believe that they have these trauma systems in their state. We're fortunate in the state of California we do have one of these trauma systems, and we'll talk about that in a second. And, but only 38 states actually have that authority, so some states still don't have an organized trauma system. What is a trauma system? What a trauma system is, that designation of a level one and a level two center, and when someone responds to your home or to a car um, motor vehicle collision or to a motorcycle collision and you are a trauma patient, they have a very clear designated route in which they're supposed to take you. So they're supposed to take you to this hospital for this reason if you have these certain conditions. In some states, it's still not organized that way, and you just go to whatever hospital they take you to. Again, a little bit older, but I just want to show you that the funds that were given in, by the Senate back in fiscal year 2001 were supposed to improve the nation's overall emergency medical system to assess state systems and recommend improvements to the current system. 
We are now 15 years later, and we're still working on this. At the time when they made this recommendation, only eight states had a fully developed trauma system. This has improved. 34 states, including California, have a legislative trauma system, so it's actually state law. Here it's Title 22. Nine states at the time did not have ACS standards. That's American College of Surgeons standards. We're surveyed every so many years to say that we do a good job at what we do. And eight states, and this really hasn't changed, don't are the only ones that limit the centers based on community need. So if someone decided that they wanted to open a trauma center in X city down the road from another trauma center, they just hang a shingle and say they're a trauma center in these communities without any assessment of need. So most Americans would be willing to pay a dime or more, a dime or more, to have a trauma center and a system in their state. Over half would be willing to pay $25 or more. So people obviously thought that this was important. Um, most people would be distressed if they don't have trauma systems that meet standards. I think that's pretty obvious. And most Americans felt that it was important for people in rural areas to have the same access to trauma care. Despite tremendous efforts in our country to improve this, it is no different today than it was at the time of this survey a number of years ago. Trauma is very expensive. You heard me allude to this. It costs somewhere between 260 to $400 billion in new charges every year to take care of trauma patients in the United States. So it's extraordinarily expensive to do what we do. These numbers, the reason the range is so big is that it's very difficult to collect this data. No one actually has a good handle on it. If you look at those injuries that require some kind of medical attention or restricted activity affect 20 million children and adolescents per year and cost just $17 billion, $17 million just for the kids. There was a study in Virginia of the 14 designated trauma centers. They had a state trauma system. Between them, they lost $44 million in a single year giving trauma care. So you have to do it. You have to do it well to make it... Uh, a tangible enterprise, and most trauma centers are now supported by the local county, city, and state governments. So a few last facts. Trauma results in more years of productive life lost than heart disease, cancer, or neurologic diseases combined, okay? And that's because it affects young people. Despite the profound economic and public health effect, federal research of injury prevention Acute care, this means the immediate care of the trauma patient, which you saw on the previous slide, and rehab has been as only 20% of that that gets given to cancer or cardiovascular disease. In a five-year period of time, almost 10,000 children aged 0 to 14 years died in motor vehicle crashes. A quarter of these involved drunk drivers, and two-thirds of these deaths was when the kid was riding with the drunk driver. So this is not only just a um, medical problem. This is a public health problem. Trauma is a public health problem. As I told you earlier, most Americans don't realize that this is a leading cause of death for those under the age of 44. Most people appreciate what we do, but don't have a fundamental understanding of what it takes to do what we do and how we do it. And most people, as I said earlier, think that this is as important as a fire department or a police department in their area. 
And with that, I hope I've given you a little glimpse into who we are, how we get there, what we do, and why what's provided at trauma centers and in trauma systems is so important. With that, I'm going to close, and I'm going to answer questions. This is a photo I actually took with my iPhone a number of years ago. I, I love it. Um, it's the end of most of my talks. Yeah? When there's a problem with diversion, um, does somebody on the scene make a decision about this patient has to go to General Hospital because of the resources yeah. instead of St. Louis or... Yeah. Um, if it's recognized by the um, pre-hospital providers that it's a trauma, they bring that patient within the city and county of San Francisco in the top half of San Mateo County to San Francisco General because we're the only show in town for trauma. It's part of what makes us good because we take care of all the patients, so we have a very high volume, so we do it frequently, and that is why we do it well. When the general hospital goes on diversion for ambulances, it does not divert trauma, so the diversion does not apply to trauma. That is a criteria of the American College of Surgeons. I probably should have put a slide in about that. Our governing body for trauma centers is the American College of Surgeons, which is our national organization that um, is contained of all of people who have met a certain number of training criteria and board certification and passed a bunch of stuff and have experience. We're called fellows of the American College of Surgeons. They go around and they do what we call site surveys or verification surveys for trauma centers, and they look through your cases. They see how you take care of things. They make sure care is consistent across the trauma centers in America, and they're the ones who designate our verification They specifically look at whether or not we divert patients, and so it is one of their criteria that except in extraordinary circumstances like a major earthquake where the building fell down, you'll always take the trauma patient. And probably, honestly, we have a backup plan. If the building fell down, although the new building will not fall down, if the building fell down, we have a backup plan, so we'd still be taking care of you. Yeah? Um, I'm intrigued by your discussion about lack of new trauma surgeons and a lack of distribution yeah. of trauma centers. Do you have any personal thoughts on there's been a lot of effort, obviously, to solve that problem? Yeah. So um, I think part of it reflects that because we live in a very economically prosperous country for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, there is a lot of choice for the people who would perhaps choose to go into medicine. So you have a huge pool of people who have great opportunities in non-medical fields, so we get less people in medicine these days than we used to. And then as you go and you select out careers, our career is no question stressful. Um, and so I don't think we do a great job of marketing who we are and what we do, and so we've spent a lot of time trying to change the face of what we do. What you see on TV is that stressed-out trauma surgeon who's exhausted and tired and complaining about their life and all this stuff, and we don't show you us who are really happy with what we do. We have relationships with our patients that are lifelong and lasting. Um, people think that because we take care of you, we never had an opportunity to meet you, that our care is done when you leave our hospital. I still have patients who reach out to me and keep me in the loop of their life, come back to see me and follow up. And I think it's because those experiences are so intense for them. So I think we have to do a better job of marketing ourselves. That's one thing. The second thing is is that we have to do a better job of um, showing people how what we do is um, not just fun. I mean, we have tremendous fun with what we do. I know that sounds weird, but we love to save lives. Where else and who else can say that every single day they go to work and they put that pager on? 
You never know what's going to come through the door, and at any given moment, you have the opportunity to truly change somebody's life, and the ability to change that life is a very tangible thing. If you're a medical doctor, you're really important, and you're managing your patient's blood pressure, and that's important for them long term, but you don't really know if they took their blood pressure medication in over 20 years. You feel like you helped them, but for us, we know whether we helped a patient in 20 minutes. And so it is a, we have to do a better job of showing people what that means. And then the last thing is, just in general, any physician would tell you the same thing. We have to make medical education more affordable for people so that it actually is a tangible opportunity for them. All my friends who went into business and did all that stuff are in much better economic situations than I am because I spent 15 or 16 years before I got a real paycheck. Other questions? Yeah. One of the factors that caused a hospital somewhere in the country to decide either to become a trauma center or to raise the level of trauma center that they might be. Yeah. So there's a lot of prestige in being a level one trauma center. That is what the pinnacle when hospital systems choose to become trauma centers, that's what they strive to be as level one trauma centers because that's the sickest of the sick. It's the most fun because we actually get to do those tangible things that we talk about. They, unfortunately, in America, the primary motivator for it is money. So some systems have figured out really well how to take care of trauma patients and make a lot of money from caring for trauma patients. And so that is primarily why they get into the business as a hospital system. The hospital on an administrative level chooses to become a trauma center, and then they go out and recruit trauma surgeons. So it's not as if non-trauma centers have trauma surgeons who then suddenly say, we want to be a trauma center. It happens the other way. So it happens on a very high-level administrative hospital level, which ultimately is influenced by finances. So if they think they can make money and health care on it, they will. I'll give you an example. When you... We all have car insurance. We're required to in the state state of California. Your car insurance, some of you have a health care portion of your car insurance. That is cash money in the bank, full charges paid. And what happens when someone gets in an accident is the hospital bill initially, uh, I'm making this very simplistic, but goes to the insurance company first. That's the car provider insurance of whoever hit you, as an example. Those charges get paid at 100%, so they make a lot of money. And then the subsequent charges are picked up by people's various health insurances if they have health insurance. There's kind of nowhere else in medicine where charges get paid at 100%. So if a healthcare system thinks that they can make some money at it, they will do it. Then there are the other trauma centers that become trauma centers for the altruistic reasons for it. There's no other trauma center in their general vicinity. They know it's a public health need, and they make the decision that even if they can't make ends meet doing it, it's a public service that they need to provide. So there's a whole host of reasons why they do it. But in places where there are already plenty of trauma centers, a new trauma center will open. It's primarily for financial purposes. Yeah? It's just an observation. I was thinking about the Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being such a militaristic um, department, maybe it would be better if they actually made a secure, like, fun trauma center to make sure that in all the areas of the country have a trauma center and that there are enough um, I think you will see. Um, I think because the perception of who we are has changed with all of these uh, intentional mass acts that have happened over the last three to five years, 
you are starting to see a shift in Congress and starting to see a shift in the federal government for some of the attention on trauma centers, we have a long way to go. But this embracement of the um, Stop the Bleeding campaign is a real testament to people paying attention to us, whether it translates into actual dollars that matter in the way that we provide care ultimately to the end user is still yet to be determined. But there is a proposal in Congress right now for increased trauma research funding primarily aimed at prevention, honestly. Um, Homeland Security has embraced the element of um, trauma care that relates to mass casualties and have actually sponsored a number of um, things, both educational materials as well as courses, as well as training activities aimed at improving cities' abilities to respond to these. And the city of San Francisco just participated and I represented, along with one of our, my colleagues, um, San Francisco General, with um, an activity co-sponsored by the FBI and Homeland Security. So they are starting to pay attention. It is not their primary mission, but it is becoming more of their focus. Yeah. Aside from like the public policy side, how does one like get involved with setting up, like understanding at least like the business administration yeah. to create the center and like become a part of that? Yeah, so um, primarily um, people who are interested in uh, trauma systems and trauma care, the place where they most easily enter the environment is in sort of the public health prevention side of it. So many people, their entry into this field and their interest in it is in violence prevention, which you'll hear more about, which is one of the reasons we're featuring this, um, and also in other public safety acts. Here in the city, um, we have some of you have probably heard about the Vision Zero program, which we're also going to talk about in subsequent um, things. We have an epidemic of pedestrians hit by vehicles within our city. You hear it all the time on the news. Um, people get involved a lot in advocacy in that way, and then another group of people get involved in advocacy for raising funds. Um, that's primarily how uh, the the public gets involved in the work that we do. Yeah? I'm curious about people that are airlifted uh -huh. to a trauma center. So is that usually because they're in a really rural area and there is no access? And what causes airlift versus Great question. Tremendous controversy around how air ambulances are used. Um, do you want to comment? This is more in the emergency medicine realm, so I'm going to let her speak to it, but it's a very controversial thing. You would think altruistically that they should be coming from places that are far away. Um, that is generally what happens, but it's not entirely the case. Yeah, so... Um so airlifting is typically used um, based on highest like acuity patient. So I used to work um, in the community out in Stockton, um, and there it's a rural community without, without a level one trauma center. And we would, call, if a patient who was critically ill came to the emergency department there, we would call for an airlift to a trauma center. Um, and those are in the in the most severe cases where. Um, you need less than whatever the transport time is by ambulance. Um, so they could get to the next hospital in 20 minutes, which would be like UC Davis. Um, here in the city and county of San Francisco, we um, don't accept uh, air traffic to the emergency department. It's m mainly been a political issue um, because the residents of San Francisco um, don't like 
air traffic coming into their neighborhoods, um, which is understandable. And then part of that is is a limitation by geography. So we are seven miles by seven miles, um, and most ambulances can get to the general with lights and sirens um, within 15 to 20 minutes, um, even out in the avenues. So the argument is that we don't really need them, which maybe may or may not be true. If you're at Ocean Beach, you'd probably want to be airlifted over the general. But um, that's the answer is mostly political here in the city. Elsewhere, it's based on um, acuity, whether or not you get airlifted or ambulance. There's also um, private air ambulance companies that have gotten into the business and actually do a fairly robust business of air transport. And so that is where some of the controversy has resided because perhaps a local EMS paramedic squad could have gotten a patient there equally as fast, but they go on a helicopter. So we in the academic and in trauma world have tried to encourage the use of these helicopters and these air medical transport primarily for people who need it because they don't have the geographic location close to another center. Other questions? Yeah. Just to follow up on that, um, the Benioff Hospital has an air they do. airport. Is it possible that people could be taken there and then taken to San Francisco General by an ambulance? Theoretically, yes. Um, that's been explored a little bit, um, but that would... Uh, primarily be people who wanted to come to San Francisco General who are not coming from within the city of San Francisco and not coming from San Mateo County, but perhaps people coming from further distances that are felt to need the level of expertise that we can provide. So that would be a relatively small group of people that you'd put in that category. Perhaps a San Francisco person who was injured climbing in the mountains, for instance, and was taken initially to Reno, and now we're trying to repatriate back to their home. That would be the kind of person that you would potentially think about. Currently, we can also fly people to the airport, actually, and then transport them up from SFO. But that's a rare person that we need that um, transport for in our community. Yeah. Um, you said that SF General is only trauma center. Uh, other hospitals have emergency departments. So who makes the decision as to which hospitals the person goes to when they call 911? Yeah, so the medics um, make that decision. So each uh, paramedic in the city and county is trained on um, triaging a patient for level of severity. So um, we had gone over the, the, the criteria for the activation to the trauma center, so whether or not the patient has low blood pressure or certain types of injuries, going certain number of miles per hour in a car accident, that makes the the level of suspicion for the paramedic high enough to need to go to um, a trauma center. And so they make that evaluation. They call our charge nurse at San Francisco General Hospital, and they make that decision together and then assemble the team. Um, There are many very good emergency departments in the city who are able to take care of minor trauma. So if, you know, you're out playing football, you fall, you break your ankle, you can go to you know, any emergency department and they can take care of that. That's not the type of trauma that we're talking about. We're, we're talking about critically ill patients or who are in, you know, uh, car accidents or hit by vehicles um, while walking in the street that are more likely to be severely injured. We have time for one final question. Yes, quick questions. How long, how long is the average length of career for a trauma surgeon? How long do you yeah. practice? <laughs> 
until we collapse from fatigue. Just kidding. Um, it's interesting. So I would say about 10 years ago, um, people were talking about getting out of the business and retiring early. And they would start to leave the business at the age of about 55 to 60, actually, and switch to careers where potentially they were still involved in medicine, but they weren't taking the amount of call that we take and being up late at night. That trend has started to reverse, and there's this core generation of our field who really saw the most transition in care and their training, and they've all reached the ages of their early 60s, and not a one of them really wants to walk away from the career, and so many of them are practicing until they're about 70. I would say on average, most people are practicing into their early to mid-60s. There's a... It's supposed to be a survey of all of us um, in these national organizations, again, to update some of these statistics I shared with you, to look at some things like that with regard to retirement age and what people are thinking about. But, Well, thank you guys so much for being here, and we look forward to the rest of this course. There are going to be some fantastic topics we talked about, and this is really just a way of giving you some introduction into what's to come. Thank you again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.